You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for the Washington Post. Well, we're finally here. The Iowa caucuses are just three days away, and there is no one better to walk us through what could happen than Dan Baltz, chief correspondent for the Washington Post, coming to us live from Iowa. Dan, welcome back to First Look. Thank you, Jonathan. You you should be out here with us in the snowstorm. No, thanks. Um, <laughs> Dan, how many t- how many Iowa caucuses will Monday make for you? Well, I've been out here for every one since uh, 1980. I think I may have missed one when I was editing uh, one cycle, but I think pretty much every one since <clears throat> 1980. Although in 1992, there really wasn't anything that anybody covered because uh, Senator Tom Harkin from Iowa was one of the presidential right. candidates and everybody basically just stayed out of the state. So that was one that uh, none of us came out to cover. Mm-hmm. So that's just you know, um, sort of shows why you are the perfect person to talk about the Iowa caucuses. But, you know, when I was at Carleton, I participated in the 1988 Minnesota caucuses. So I have an idea of of what uh, a caucus is like. But for those who don't, explain the difference between a caucus that happens in Iowa and the primary that's going to happen in New Hampshire a month later. Well, they're quite different events. Uh, I I think um, the principal difference is that a caucus is basically a party gathering at a specific time on a specific day, um, as opposed to a primary in which people can vote basically all day long in the the way we normally vote in a general election or other primaries. For the caucuses on on Monday night, people will gather and they will begin at seven o'clock and they will conduct some party business, and they will also do a presidential preference poll. Um, Now, that's only the case this year for the Republicans in Iowa. The Democrats have fundamentally changed the process um, out here in Iowa. So though there will be caucuses for both parties on Monday night, only the Republicans will be doing a presidential preference test. Right, because the Democrats have moved pushed Iowa out of the way in favor for South Carolina going first in its Democratic presidential primary contest. So as a result of people going to usually to people's homes or to to school um, gymnasiums, it's a very unlike the primary where you go into a ballot, you know, ballot and close the curtain and cast your vote at a caucus. You're doing this in front of your your friends, family and and neighbors. So is that why the I well, let me recast the question. Does that make the Iowa caucus not necessarily an accurate bellwether of 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 support within the Republican Party? Well, it could it, it that could be the case. Although uh, this year, my understanding is that they will be they will be filling out a piece of paper. Um, in the past, the, the what you're talking about is the way caucuses in the past have operated, which is you go into this this community center or a church or school whatever. Um, and at the, if, the way the Democrats have always done it, you stand up and they say, okay, if you're for candidate A, you go to this corner of the room. And if you're for yeah. candidate B, you go to that room. Um, and if your candidate doesn't meet a certain threshold, you have to then go find another candidate who has met threshold. So you're doing this all in a public way. The Republicans traditionally have been less, uh, a little less public about a little less transparent, but nonetheless, 
you know, you are there with everybody at the same time, and everybody has a sense of who who is for whom. Um, people wear their badges, so it's 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 quite unlike uh, a primary in many respects. And there's been a lot of criticism about it over the years. For, I think for good reasons. One is that many people simply can't make it at the specific time that the caucuses are held. There's been efforts over the year, recent years to make it possible for people who can't make it. Uh, to be able to vote in an absentee way. But um, the Iowa Democrats tried some innovations in 2020, and they ended up with a mess on their hands. They never could quite figure out on caucus night who had won, and it took a number of days before they decided that. So um, the, the caucuses are in greater disfavor, um, but Iowa has prided itself on being the state that goes first with these caucuses, and so that's what we will have on Monday night, despite the cold weather that we're having out here. Yeah, I was just uh, taking a look. You know, Jonathan Martin of the New York Times right now is doing a live hit from Des Moines. <laughs> the, the snow is horizontal. <laughs> it's, it's picked up in the last half hour significantly, and the temperatures are going to go down from here. The, the, the high temperature on caucus day is expected to be below zero. That's the high temperature. So on caucus night, they're talking about a wind chill of 30 or 40 degrees below zero. But they're Iowans. That's that's nothing to them. That's like 20 degrees to, well, to the I, rest I of to, I, I was at a, a number of us from the Post were at a, a Ron DeSantis event last night uh, near Des Moines. And I talked to an undecided voter and I said, well, you definitely do you go to all the caucuses. Oh, yes. I said, are you worried about the weather? No, no. She said, we're Iowans. <laughs> exactly. So that's a great segue, Dan, because I was going to ask you, what are you hearing from Iowans? What are the issues that seem to be animating them? Um, and are those issues similar to what the issues are an animating Republicans across the country? Jonathan, I think the, the real issue in this Republican nominating contest is, are you for Donald Trump or are you not for Donald Trump? <laughs> there are issues. And the, the, the debate between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis on CNN the other night gave you an indication of uh, some significant differences between them, although they gr agree on a lot. But on, for example, on Ukraine, um, there is a real disagreement between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. Um, and certainly immigration is, a, is an important issue uh, to Republican voters and, and frankly, increasingly to, to Democratic voters. But, but that's an issue of importance to Republican voters. Uh, cultural issues, um, whether it's, it's uh, abortion and what types of restrictions should be uh, put on uh, the, the right to choose, um, that's certainly an issue. Um, Ron DeSantis is still talking about, uh, you know, he's going to shut down uh, woke programs and woke efforts. So those those issues are in the background, but really it's a it's a question of can anybody stop Donald Trump and and if so, who is that? And we know that DeSantis and and Haley have been battling to be second place finishers here in Iowa behind the former president. Um, in the time that we have left, Dan, I can't let you get away without talking about this excellent series you spearheaded at the post about American democracy entitled Imperfect Union. What, what, did you, what, what did you set out to achieve and what are the biggest takeaways? Well, this was a team effort at the post under the direction of, of uh, Griff Whitty, who's our democracy editor. And when we ended up with 10 stories and a lot of people uh, uh, participated in it and contributed significantly to it. Um, the, the, the ambition or the goal of the project was to take a look at what is it that, that ails American democracy. Um, and this was in some ways 
I won't say separate or apart from, but somewhat different from simply the question of how polarized are we or uh, the divisions over what you know Donald Trump might or might not do and the things he's talking about if he's reelected. Um, this was an effort to look a, a, a more broadly at some of the structural issues and structural questions uh, that have left many, many people feeling as though government and, and uh, this democracy does not represent them uh, in any significant way. And so that was what we were trying to do. And, and uh, a, a couple of the pieces that I contributed to focused, first of all, on what are those structural what are those structural problems? Whether it's you know a, a United States Senate that obviously was never meant to be representative of the population, but nonetheless has become much more unrepresentative uh, than the founding fathers might have might have expected, or the Electoral College where you know, Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight elections, but have num won a number of those elections because of the Electoral College. Is that fair? Is that it, it should something be done with that um, lifetime? Uh, tenure for Supreme Court justices. Is that a good thing or not? As the court has become seen as become um, becoming more politicized, um, we looked, We then looked uh, on the ground at how some of these things are playing out. Kevin Sullivan did a wonderful piece out of Tennessee early in the series about a woman. Um, this this came after the, the shootings at the, at the Covenant School. Um, this was a woman who's very conservative, uh, a, a Second Amendment defender, but who nonetheless wanted the, the Republican-dominated legislature to do something about the gun issue and, and became a, a, an active participant. Um, she was unsuccessful in that effort, but it gave an indication of kind of the mismatch sometimes between public opinion on a big issue um, and where legislators are inclined to go. So we tried to cover the, the waterfront. And the final piece that we did, Jonathan, was an effort to offer up some solutions. What are some ideas that are out there, even if they're not well talked about? And the goal in that was really to help contribute to a conversation. Um, we know that these are things that, if they are going to change, may take you know years, maybe even decades to change. Um, but the conversation we thought was valuable. And one of the things we wanted to do was end on a note in which we could say, yes, there is some sense of optimism or some sense of that, that we're not in a kind of a helpless position. And that was that was the way we wanted to wrap it up. Um, we are the ones we've been waiting for, I seem to remember, was a, uh, a campaign chant way back when. Uh, Dan, Dan Baltz in snow swept Iowa. Thank you, as always, for coming to First Look. Uh, I would say have a good weekend, but you're not going to have one three days out. <laughs> Uh, from Iowa, are you? Uh, Jonathan, we'll have a good weekend one way or another. Don't don't worry about that. Uh, there'll there'll be some campaigning, probably less than normal. Uh, but um, but th this is going to be the center of the political uh, universe for the next three days. Next three days, and probably days after that, given the results we will see come Monday night. Uh, Dan Baltz, thanks very much. Thanks, Jonathan. And it's time for our opinions roundtable. So we're going to go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post editor-at-large, Robert Kagan, and Washington Post columnist, Jennifer Rubin. Bob, Jennifer, welcome back to First Look. Great to be here. So before we get into what's about to happen on Monday and you know, Republican, part, uh, Republican Party politics, we have to talk about um, the airstrikes that happen in Yemen overnight carried out by the United States and five, five of its allies. Um, Jennifer, let me come to you uh, uh, on this first. Can you talk about the significant, significance of that action and whether you think that 
what happened last night signifies the official widening of the Israel-Hamas war from that specific area to a wider regional conflict? Well, the attacks on U.S. forces and other shippings by the Houthis, which is an Iran-backed group in Yemen, has been going on now for weeks. And the president has come under some criticism for, frankly, not taking stronger action. This was that stronger action. And specifically, it was in response to a very complicated and complex attack just three days ago uh, by Houthi forces, in which um, a number of missiles, a number of drones, Drones, um, were shot down by American forces. And as you said, Jonathan, the response here was uh, the administration made an effort to make this multinational um, with the British in particular, but with support from countries like Bahrain and Australia. The hope is that this will act not only to degrade, but also to deter these actions. The administration is trying very hard to separate this from the Israel-Hamas war. Um, they have indicated that they don't want it to expand into a regional war, uh, looking primarily at Hezbollah in the north, um, but frankly also uh, Iran and uh its uh, proxy states in Syria. So they're trying to walk a very tight line here, which is to deal with the Houthis, try to isolate that, degrade that, and at the same time, hope that this does not further inflame the region. And that's a difficult uh, order to say, to put it mildly. Um, the Israelis were informed in advance and are anticipating perhaps more retaliatory efforts from Hezbollah and from Hamas, which are both uh, supported by Iran. Um, but we'll have to see. As of last night, um, the Houthis had not responded. It was very interesting last night. I asked um, two senior officials who were doing a briefing whether they um, were anticipating further action against Iran and uh, what that might look like. And they were very careful to say, well, we're not going to telegraph it, but we absolutely hold Iran responsible. Um, Iran is is um, a close partner of the Houthis. It's provided intelligence, it's provided logistical information to them. So we are now in a situation in which um, I think eyes are turned not so much um, or not exclusively towards Israel, but towards Tehran. And this is really the nub of the entire problem in the region, which is Iran is a malicious force. And whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Lebanon, whether it's in the West Bank, whether it's in Gaza, um, Iran is lurking. And um, it continues to be a force in the Middle East that is um, quite dangerous. And we haven't quite figured out uh, a way of, frankly, addressing it and mm -hmm. keeping them uh, in their box. You know, Bob, let me get you on another another aspect of what happened last night, because that action only serves to highlight the extraordinary news about Secretary Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's cancer diagnosis, the emergency hospital stay, and then the lack of prompt notification of, of the White House from the president on down. How big a deal, uh, how big a deal is this? Well, I mean, in some respects, it is. Uh, it is a big deal. I mean, it, it's not appropriate for a cabinet official to basically go off the grid for a few days without telling anybody. I, everyone, I think, sympathizes with uh, Secretary Austin's desire for privacy, et cetera. But uh, unfortunately, when you take a job like his, you sort of forego your option of privacy, um, you know, and especially when we have like big military operations that, that we're getting ready to carry out. So 
uh, whether it will lead to his dismissal, I, I kind of doubt it. I think this will ultimately uh, die out. But it, it was a bad, uh, if understandable, but nevertheless bad choice on his part. Yeah, ba bad call, but he's not going to lose his his job over it. If you know anything about President Biden, you know that that latter comment is true. Let's let's turn to politics. Jennifer, you wrote a few days ago that if uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is not the nominee, it will be Donald Trump. And then you outlined what Haley must do um, so that, quote, we might actually see a competitive race rather than a coronation for a would-be dictator. I set that up because I want everyone to watch this. That election, Trump lost it. Biden won that election. And the idea that he's gone and carried this out forever to the point that he's going to continue to say these things to scare the American people are wrong. We've seen a lot of states come together and do more election integrity bills. We need to do more than that. We still have three or four states that I'm worried about that don't have that. But at the end of the day, I will always defend and fight the for the Constitution. That's what we should do as Americans. I think what happened on January 6th was a terrible day, and I think President Trump will have to answer for it. So is that what you had in mind or uh, should she do more of that or is it too little too late? Well, that was a minor, minor start. I certainly wish I prob and I probably both wish um, that they had really taken it to Donald Trump. Um, unfortunately, both these candidates, um, both Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, are afraid to death of the base, which has become very radicalized, which has adopted the big lie. And so they've kind of danced around it. And instead, they spend most of their time sniping at one another. Now, that said, I think Nikki Haley is actually in the best position she's been in since the race began. And that's because of two things. One, Chris Christie dropped out this week, and he was someone who was absorbing um, at least part of the anybody but Trump vote. And the second thing is that Ron DeSantis has just never um, gotten off the ground. He's been a terrible candidate. He has been robotic and just downright weird. Um, and voters have not taken to him. So in the most recent polls, it looks like Nikki Haley has gone ahead of Ron DeSantis. And that was actually Actually, one of my uh, items on the checklist of things she has to do, which is I think she needs to come in second. Um, she needs some momentum. I think she's got a good chance to come in second. Um, but obviously, the distance between her and Donald Trump is very, very large. And that remains a problem. So is she running for second place or is she positioning herself so that she actually might have an opportunity to pass him in New Hampshire, where she's running much, much closer? Um, um, Bob, you have written, you wrote at the end of November an extraordinary essay entitled The Trump Dictatorship is Increasingly Inevitable, We Should Stop Pretending. Uh, I raved about it, lots of folks talked about it, but also lots of folks complain, well, dang it, Bob, you didn't give us any solutions. So then you wrote a follow-up where you gave some solutions, and one of the solutions was, uh, can everybody coalesce, get out of the race and coalesce around one other candidate and and give that person the strength to go after Trump to go after Trump? If I memory serves, that person was Nikki Haley. Um, so given given what you wrote in in your part two and given what we what Jennifer was just saying and what we saw in that clip from the CNN debate, does she even does she stand a chance? 
it, the question is a chance to do what? And, and I think, you know, we have to think in terms of the general election and where we're going to be with the general election. And I think it's uh, as, as well as she may do in Iowa and New Hampshire and maybe even do better than expected in South Carolina. I think it's a real challenge uh, to defeat Donald Trump for the, for the nomination. The question then is where do some Republicans who were with Christie and then move to Haley. Some people who were with DeSantis were anti-Trump. Where do the people who didn't want to vote at all for the Trump uh, ticket uh, during the nomination process, where do they go during the general? And a lot, that, a lot of that has to do with what Nikki Haley does after she has not won the nomination. Does she endorse Trump? Uh, does she accept a, a role as potentially his VP? Um, and, and we are playing for a very small percentage of Republicans. The vast majority of Republicans cannot be moved. Uh, the question is, can we move a few percentage points uh, in favor of, uh, or at least away from Trump in the general? And I believe that what Nikki Haley and Chris Christie have been about in this period does lend to hope, lend hope to that possibility, but a lot depends on on what people do later on. I think it's important to establish that there are significant numbers of Republicans who do not want to vote for Donald Trump. That's what the Nikki Haley candidacy represents. The question is, where do they go in November after Haley has lost? In, in your Trump dictatorship piece, you, you wrote that um, Trump will have locked up the Republican nomination in 13 weeks. Um, do you still see that being the case? Look, the hopeful, you know, I hope we don't have a dictatorship in the country. Part of me thinks that, yeah, maybe we have a chance and, and, and I'm certainly going to root for it. And I think everybody should work hard now to, insofar as they have the capacity to make that happen. But if, if you had to ask me as a kind of, you know, as a historian and as an analyst, I would say the odds are against uh, Trump losing, not winning the nomination. You know, Jennifer, one of the other things that um, Bob wrote in his piece, which um, al al didn't, al well, it alarmed me only because I could see exactly what he was talking about. And this was back in late November when he said, when he wrote, like, I'm talking about you like you're not here, Bob. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but Bob wrote, like, one of the dangers is right now, you've got all these people running against him and people you know, behind the scenes talking smack about him. But the moment it looks like he's got the nomination locked up, everyone is going to rally around him. Leaders will start, endorse, will start endorsing him. And in fact, that's what we have seen in the last few weeks. Basically, the Republican congressional leadership um, has all come out and endorsed endorsed Donald Trump. So if that is it, that is what's going to happen, isn't it, Jennifer? And then if that is the case, then does that mark the official end of the Republican Party and basically the coronation of the Trump MAGA party? It certainly looks that way. Um, could lightning strike in some fashion? I suppose so. Uh, but needless to say, I think there's a very, very high probability that he will be the nominee. And one thing that um, I thought was very interesting the other day was what Liz Cheney had to say. I think she is the truth speaker um, for people on the right. And what she said is that the Republican Party is kind of gone. They have um, been subsumed into this cult of personality. And what she said was after 2024, yeah. 
don't have Donald Trump, that there's going to have to be something other than this Republican Party. She's kind of finally given up on this Republican Party because it has become such a cult of personality, such a conspiracy mongering group um, that even she, who for the longest time had simply said, I want to fight for the soul of the Republican Party. I want to um, rescue the Republican Party from herself. She now sounds like someone who wants to take the her marbles and uh, those around her and those who supported Nikki Haley, those who supported Chris Christie and start something else. Um, the problem with that is you have to first defeat Donald Trump. And until Trump and like-minded people are defeated, he will prevent um, any sort of emergence of a normal center-right kind of party. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see what she does in the general election, which she actually goes so far as to support President Biden. President Biden, if you remember, in 2016, had a number of Republicans who came out to endorse him, uh, people like John Kasich, who is the former governor of Ohio. So I think, um, frankly, uh, I agree with Liz Cheney. It's usually a good thing to do these days, since she is uh, very, very perceptive about her former uh, colleagues. Um, and I think the Republican Party is lost at this point. So the job is going to be to rally the rest of the country and sort of a very broad pro-democracy movement. Um, and the good news, I suppose, is that Donald Trump is being very forthright. He wants a dictatorship. He has uh, given Bob all the talking points he wants. And Bob, it sounds like he's been reading your piece and saying, yeah, darn it, that's what I want. Um, I really do want a dictatorship. I really do want to use the military. I really do want to use the Justice Department against my enemies. So if we want clarity, at least we have clarity. Yeah, and Bob, you wanted to jump in? I just want to say that the, it's important to understand that one of the reasons he is playing up, or at least until recently, was playing up his aspirations to be a dictator for a day or a dictator for two days or for three days or whatever, is because he correctly understands that his voters, his core constituency, wants to hear that. Uh, there is a real desire for a strong man uh, to take on the the liberal world that they think is oppressing them. And so his constant flirtation with the idea of dictatorship is a direct response, uh, in addition to his own egomania, but it's also a direct response to what his core voters want. And this is a great segue, Jennifer, to the question I was gonna ask you uh, about something you wrote recently, uh, where you wrote, we get the government we want and deserve. So when talking about the MAGA movement, President Biden often says, this isn't America, this is not who we are. But is this who America is? <laughs> or at least enough of America? It's part of what America is, that's right. Listen, he got a lot of votes in 2016 uh, and 2020. Wait, and Jennifer, listen, even more votes in 2020 yes, than he did in 16, exactly. 12 million so, more. So there are tens of millions of people who know exactly what they're voting for and exactly what he wants. So I think it's really specious to say, well, we're somehow better than this. This is not what we want. We're immune to right-wing movements. And in fact, we have a 
very large segment of America who is checked out of democracy. And that is the great challenge. That's the great threat that we face. And uh, I think President Biden, in the first couple of speeches he gave um, after the new year, was exactly right. He is putting that front and center, challenging the American people, trying to rally the American people that we really do not want to go down this route, um, that we don't want to lose our freedoms, we don't want to lose our democracy, and that there are real consequences for allowing someone like Donald Trump back in office. So I think we're having that argument that uh, election in which democracy is on the ballot. But the scary part is there's no guarantee democracy is going to win. Uh, Bob, um, let me give you the last word on this. So given what Jennifer what Jennifer said, and you know, it does feel there are a lot of people who like the idea of, of dictatorship, as you said, then what does this mean about the viability of American democracy and thus democracy around the world? Well, let me start with American democracy. And I, I think it's important, as, as Jennifer was alluding to, to remember our history. I mean, we, we treat our history as if it's history. That's a very American quality and therefore not relevant to us. Um, and as I was listening to Dan Ball's, you know, very intelligent, and I've read his uh, articles about managing democracy, I feel like our time horizon in terms of our expectations have been built uh, by thinking about what the last 80 years or so have been like and how this is an aberration from that. But if you go back further, if you look at 19th century America or even early 20th century America, it looks a lot more like what we're seeing today. Um, this is a nation that has always had a significant portion of the population that does not agree with the fundamental principles of the founding. Uh, there are millions and millions of Americans who believe that the United States was founded as a Christian nation, for instance, which was absolutely contrary to the founders' intention. And so uh, we have to realize that this has always been with us, and, and the point being is that it's always a struggle. I think Americans, or at least Americans who do uh, cherish fundamental American principles, have gotten very complacent in assuming that uh, others, uh, the institutions, will automatically protect us without realizing that American history is a history of struggle uh, in which uh, liberalism has not always been successful um, and, and that we are back in that struggle. It's not unlike the period before the Civil War. Um, and I think we have to understand that we're in a fight now. If you care about the principles of this country, you now have to be willing to stand up for them in a much more active way than people are used to. And I just don't see much sign that that's happening, I have to say. Well, I, I hope come uh, election day this November that um, at least that last piece that you said um, will be proven wrong. Bob Kagan, uh, Jennifer Rubin, thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.